0: This is Reverend John Ferret and we're in episode 4 relating to the 7th commandment, Lo Tanaf, no adultery. And again, this is part of the ongoing Torah study. Torah being the first 5 books of the Bible for Christians. I've entitled it, The Gospel According to Moses on the Book of Exodus. And we're stuck on lesson 47 because what we're doing is we're doing an intense, in-depth study. On Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17, the Lord's Aseret Devarim, his ten words. We call it the Ten Commandments. Now, we left off in episode 3 asking why some Christian theologians say that the Seventh Commandment encompasses all sexual sin, all sexual immorality. And how can they do that? They say the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, also includes extramarital sex between two single adults. Or pedophilia. Or lust. Or bestiality, prostitution, homosexuality. Now I agree, and I think we all do, that This, th- th- these are all sins, no doubt about it. But the seventh commandment, God's word, only says lo tenaf, no adultery. And I think if you've been with me in this Torah study, in this book of Exodus, and also in the other one, the gospel according to Moses on the book of Genesis, we're trying to say, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible not say? And all God's word says is lo tenaf. No adultery. It doesn't say anything else about other sexual sin. On top of that, then God says this. This is in Deuteronomy 4, verse 2. And I'm reading from the New American Standard. You shall not add to the word which I'm commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Now, the JPS Torah commentary does respond and go into this. And this amazing Jewish commentary talks about the fact that this verse is generally taken as a blanket prohibition of abrogating any of the laws taught by Moses or adding new ones. As such, it would serve as a general introduction to the instruction, the Torah, God's teaching, expressing its completeness and immutability. It cannot change. And even the Orthodox Jewish rabbis in their Torah commentary, called the Chumash, and you know sometimes that I have some criticism of the Orthodox Jewish rabbis in terms of some of their very difficult midrashim, their very conclusions in their commentaries that really add new meaning to the Bible. But this is actually good. So they go in and say, do not add, nor shall you subtract. By definition, perfection cannot be approved upon. So that for one to add or to subtract from the commandments of the Torah is an unacceptable unacceptable implication that god's torah is lacking they go on and they talk about one great teacher asks this question and it seems that there's no real harm in adding a law only in removing one now he answers this with a parable so in other words he's asking the questions it's it's not that he's asking the question for himself but he's trying to explain Can we add a new law or a new commandment and we are forbidden to remove an old one? So he answers this and he says, there was a person who would regularly borrow household vessels from his neighbor and return them twice as many. He explained that the vessels became pregnant and gave birth to new ones and they all belonged to the lender. Obviously, the lender was only too happy to provide his neighbor with more items on loan. When the neighbor asked to borrow his tall silver candelabrum, the lender was excited with the anticipation of receiving a second in return. The next day, when he asked for this candelabrum, his neighbor told him that, unfortunately, the candelabrum died and there was nothing left. The lender shouted in anger and ridicule, How could a candelabrum die? his neighbor countered. How could a tray or a spoon give birth? Just as you believed it then, you should believe it now. Similarly, if one is willing to accept that there is a need for new commandments, he will accept that some of the old ones can be eliminated. And so what we have is we have a rabbinic view here that this word cannot be changed, cannot be added to or subtracted. Leave it as it is. I go back to Malachi three six, where God says, "I am the Lord, and I do not change." Or His, wo- or or this, that His word is fixed. Can't be changed in some one nineteen, verse eighty nine. So Adonai's word is immutable. So if you go in the English dictionary. That means unchanging over time or unable to be changed. So the Almighty says, don't add to his word. And yet the church does. Why? Now remember, I agree with the sexual sins that they elicit. Pedophilia, uh, extramarital sex between two single adults and others. But the thing is, again, the church... Some of the church teachers are saying this is all related to the seventh commandment, and it's not. So why would they be doing this? It could be that they're doing their own rabbinic midrash. Just as the rabbis do midrash, we do it as well. Now let me explain. Midrash, the Hebrew, is basically... A conjunction with a Hebrew word it's actually Midrash an M followed by the word drash in other words that which comes from study in other words you study and what have you got from study you got Midrash so it's a rabbinic method of interpreting the Bible that tried to reconcile apparent contradictions in the Bible or address unanswered questions or Another thing to establish rationale for new laws, adding biblical content with new meaning, and this was where I have a lot of criticism. This goes against Deuteronomy four two. Now, there's Jewish midrash that's good, and there's Jewish Be- and there's Jewish midrash that, boy, we have to question. So. For instance, here is a midrash basic, uh, based on the first commandment. And what we're dealing with is, I am the Lord your God who has taken you out of the land of Egypt from the house of slavery. That's the first set of words. The, we would say the first commandment in Judaism. One of the great rabbis one of the great Torah teachers in Judaism, he explains that a necessary prerequisite prerequisite to any commandment is that we be informed that Adonai is our God. Laws cannot be promulgated until the authority of the promulgator is acknowledged. So in other words, there is a, a parable where a conquering king entered his new domain. And the people asked him to issue decrees. And he, referred, and he responded, first, accept my sovereignty. Only then can I set forth decrees. So too God said, in effect, accept my sovereignty, and then you can accept my laws. And that is a good Midrash. That's a great uh, study of that text and the conclusions to come out of it. In other words, as we take a look at this, these laws that we're reading, these come from God. And this is being established in the first commandment. Now let's take a look at a midrash, a teaching of the rabbis, based upon the fact of Genesis 126, which actually conflicts with Deuteronomy 4 2. So in Genesis 126. What we're reading is, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness that they shall rule over the fish of the sea. Their commentary on this is, God said to the ministering angels. He's talking to angels where it says, let us make man in our image. The Bible doesn't say that. The rabbis are making this up. And they say the angels were created on the second day of creation. Now we're not gonna go into that because you go back and you're gonna find out there's no mention of angels being created on the second day of creation. Going on in the commentary, when Moses wrote the Torah and came to this verse, which is in the plural and implies that there is more than one creator, he said, sovereign of the universe, Why do you thus furnish a pretext for heretics to maintain that there is a plurality of divinities? Right, God replied. Whoever wishes to err will err. Instead, let them learn from their Creator who created all. Yet when He came to create man, He took counsel with the ministering angels. Thus God taught that one should always consult others before embarking upon major new initiatives. And he was not deterred by the possibility that some might choose to find a sacrilegious implication in the verse. That's, you can see that this commentary by the rabbis is very problematic. They're talking about God had to take counsel with the angels to determine whether he should proceed this makes no sense. And then on the top, to suggest the angels were actually created on day two of the creation. Now, returning with that idea of Midrash, we return back to the idea that there are some theologians in the church that are adding meaning to the seventh commandment like a Midrash, just like the rabbis. But why? Now, it could very well be that they we all see that there's nowhere in the Torah is there a prohibition on sex outside of marriage between two single adults. There is a prohibition on sex outside of marriage when it is adultery, when you have a married woman having an affair with a man who's not her husband, or a married man having an affair, a sexual affair, with a woman, not his wife. But nowhere, nowhere in the entire Hebrew scriptures is there a prohibition on sex outside of marriage between two single adults. And this comes from the website, My Jewish Learning, which goes into this in depth. Yet, in Second Temple Judaism and early Christianity, they said it was a sin, but all they had was the Old Testament. All they had was the Hebrew scriptures. But the hebrew scriptures did not address it so something's missing and so could it very well be that these theologians in the church would say well it's got to be related to some place god must address it someplace he must address it here in the in in the seventh commandment of the ten commandments now on top of that jesus in jesus in jesus's day there was also a prohibition on abortion abortion was considered murder so for instance when i read from josephus in one of his books called against Appian, and josephus probably wrote this oh probably 20 30 40 years after jesus had ascended to the father so we're very close to jesus's day And Josephus writes, The law, moreover, enjoins us to bring up all our offspring and forbids women to cause abortion of what is begotten or to destroy it afterward. And if any woman appears to have so done, she will be a murderer of her child. Abortion was considered murder. And Philo, Philo was the great Jewish philosopher that was alive in Jesus' day. The disciples would have known him. And in his writings, he also talked about the fact that abortion is murder. We have the early church, Christian church document, the Dadachi. Probably written, oh, in the late first or very early second century. Again, probably, oh, what would we say? Uh, 70 years after Jesus? Possibly. And in there, we have the same idea. But if we go into the Hebrew scriptures, there's no commandment against abortion. Now, there are conclusions we can make. We can connect some verses together and say, no, I think we can create a solid argument that indeed the Bible basically says that abortion is murder. But see, it doesn't make the statement abortion is murder. Josephus did. Philo does. Did the Dadachi does. But the Bible doesn't. So Josephus, Philo, um, the, and and the writers of the Docky, they all see that abortion is murder, but where do they get it from? And it's the same thing about extramarital sex between two single adults, or pedophilia, or bestiality. So could it be that the theologians who see that there is this emptiness in the Torah and emptiness in the Hebrew Scriptures make up their own conclusion and say it's got to be the seventh commandment that covers it all? Now, it's interesting to note that I found in all of my research and all the resources I'm looking here in my room, plus all the good ones that I access on the Internet, I found a Christian scholarly resource that I use a lot, and it's the only one who suggests an answer. It's gotquestions.org, and I was amazed. Let me just read this to you. From their uh, website where the topic was, why, why is you shall not commit adultery in the Ten Commandments? And start reading the article. The dictionary defines adultery as voluntary sexual intercourse between a married person and a person who is not his or her spouse. The Bible definitely would concur with this definition. And God's reasons for instituting his commandment against adultery are twofold. First, God established the institution of marriage as being between one man and one woman. Uh, God created marriage to be a building block of his creation and of society. Now, this is interesting because this is exactly what I have been teaching with regards to um, Egypt and the Hebrews coming out of Egypt. In Egypt and in all the ancient Near Eastern cultures, adultery was considered that attack on the family. The foundation of a good society and here again got questions they don't go into that background in the ancient Near East but I'm beginning to wonder if the scholars realize this now the second reason for the commandment is found in Leviticus 18 1 through 5 as God's chosen people the Israelites were to reflect God's character in the promised land God commanded his people to be holy for he is holy And you can read this in Leviticus 19, verse 2, Leviticus 20, verse 7, uh, Leviticus uh, chapter 11, verse 44. They are to be holy as God is holy. And part of holy living is sexual purity. God did not want his people, and here it is, emulating the behavior of the Egyptians from whom he delivered them. Nor did he want his people copying the behavior of the people into whose land he was bringing them, the Canaanites. The implication was that adultery and other sexual sins was commonplace in the lands where the Israelites had been and were going to. Wow. It's just amazing. It's the only Christian source that included adultery as an attack on the family, the basic building block of society, but also the only Christian source that also says there are additional laws God has established that are not written in the Torah. And that is the command that don't do what the pagans do. Now, I've taught this. And so it's just so cool to have another scholarly source back me up on that conclusion. So consider, I'm going to go into Leviticus 18, uh, verses 1 through 4, and we read, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, "Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan, Canaan where I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God." We go to the same chapter but verse 24. And God is saying, Do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all these the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. A key verse also is Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 29 through 32. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations which you are going in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, beware that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods, that I may also do likewise? You shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God, for every abominable act which the Lord hates they have done for their gods, and they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Now, as one studies the ancient Near East, it is also clear, this is so clear in Canaan, but also in Greece and in Rome. Sex outside of marriage, marriage, ritual sex in the temple. There were female temple prostitutes. Female temple prostitutes dedicated to the god or the goddess of the temple that they served in. They were called harlots. You want to know the definition of the word harlot? More than likely, based upon the Hebrew, it means a female temple prostitute. A woman who's giving up her body as part of ritual sex to worship the pagan god or goddess. And there were male harlots as well. And then pedophilia in Greece and Rome. When I was in Turkey and I was at the ancient city, one of the seven churches of the book of Revelation in Pergamum, we learned about the pagan god Dionysus. And during his celebration, his annual celebration, there were parties, men's parties only, where there was drinking and eating and feasting and And after all of the eating and the drinking and so on, they would bring in boys or girls, pedophilia, so that they would have that type of sex. That's in Greece and in Rome. And infanticide and abortion, you could look this up and you can Google this for yourself. In Greece and Rome, infanticide and abortion was legal in Greece and Rome. It's just like God stated in his Torah in Deuteronomy 12:31 every abominable act they do every abominable act that God hates they're doing it. And God wants us Israel and us to be separate to be distinctly to be distinctly different to be set apart. The Hebrew word is kadosh. Be holy for he is holy. So, we can now see that definitely we have a statement in the Bible, the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And then when God says to Israel, and really to us, don't do what is done in the pagan nations for everything that he hates. All the abominations that God hates are done by them. So whatever they do, don't do. They do premarital sex in the temple. Extramarital sex, bestiality, pedophilia, child sacrifice, abortion, and so much more. So God didn't write the laws. They didn't need to. So it's pretty clear why we can see why these were sins in Jesus' day. Why they're sins in Judaism even today. God never had to state that abortion was a sin because it was already being practiced in the pagan nations, and he's saying, "Whatever they do, don't do." Look at the nations around you, and for us too. Look at the United States. Look what's happening around us now. This is this is close to home. False gods, idolatry, and he hates, and he hates everything that they do. Do not be like them. Do not imitate them. Even Peter in the New Testament, he teaches Torah. He's really emphasizing what we just did, that that God's statements about don't do what the pagans do. This is in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Peter says, "In coming to him, as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but as choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Verse 7. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieved the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom, they were also appointed. Verse nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshy lust which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, don't do what the Gentiles do. In essence, Paul gets into it in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And he's saying, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. and Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you. Not, there's not even a hint of this type of sin, as is proper among the saints. There must no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving, the giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. There should not be even a hint of what the pagans do. So many theologians in the church they said the seventh commandment prohibits all prohibits all sexual immorality no way all it says is "lo enough they're putting words in the bible that there's and there's no need god has already taken care of it he always does it simple don't do what the ungodly do they do what god hates so in the seventh commandment god precisely said no adultery That's a married woman with a man having sex with a man with not her husband or a married man having an affair with a woman not his wife. And we remember for Moses and the Hebrews they remembered the law in Egypt nothing new except that God commanded it and not men. If one is to be one be one in God's covenant then there is no adultery. And on top of that There's no sexual immorality, bestiality, prostitution, harlotry, extramarital sex. For with regards to adultery, that law is a major protection to having a good and godly society. Now some final thoughts. And it relates to the picture that I have used for all four of these lessons on the seventh commandment. And we know that men are very prone to sexual lust by their eyes. It's a dilemma. That's the the way we're made. But Jesus gives us a fence around Torah. Now, the reason why I bring this up There are those who say that Jesus, what we're about to read, is saying that lust is a sin, and he's not. What he's saying is, if you obey one law, this will prevent you from committing another law, the law that's written in the Torah. This is called offense around Torah. Rabbis did this all the time. And it follows the same, you might say, word pattern that even Jesus uses let's go to Matthew 5 starting in verse 27 you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery now now another rabbi with uh, another uh, law he might say you've heard it said um, uh, not to covet your neighbor's wife but I say all right, you'll read this you can actually read this in the Talmud and we hear Jesus saying you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery but I say that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. You know the rest of it. Basically, Jesus is saying, you want to prevent yourself from committing adultery? Don't even look at her. In other words, if you're not looking at her and you obey that law, that will be a definitely offense that will prevent you from breaking the law that's in Torah. Finally, I recommend a podcast that I did a number of months ago. It's called Truth Nuggets, podcast number seven, and you can go to the website www.lightamenorah.org and remember Lightamenorah is all one word and Menorah is spelled M-E-N-O-R-A-H, www.lightamenorah.org. When you're there, look at the top of the homepage and look for the word Other Resources. Click on that, and then click on Podcast Playlists, and then once you do, scroll down. And what you want to do is scroll down to find the playlist that is called Truth Nuggets. Click on that one, and all of a sudden, all the truth nuggets, there's 27 or 29 of them, find number seven. This podcast goes into a study on the word fornication. Today, fornication means extramarital sex, not originally. In the 13th century, really, when this word started being used in the old French, it means something different. The etymology of the world is related to idolatry or to being a harlot or a cult prostitute, male or female. And they used that word that came from the old French in the 13th century. It was the English word that translates the Greek word pornea. And pornea is more than just a sexual sin. But the implications of total turning from God to idols and idol worship. And though I'm not trying to give you the detailed study, I hope to do a, a complete study on the word fornication. But it's related to this. The word pornea, the Greek word, is used in the Septuagint, which is the translation of the Hebrew Bible from Hebrew to Greek, is used in a very interesting verse. And we can see, we can see side by side what God seems to be getting at. This is in Numbers 15, verse 39. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you played the harlot. The word there in Greek is not harlot, it's pornea. And so, indeed, what we have is, when we take a look at verse 39, either we're following God's word, and we're obeying it and we're living according to his word or we have turned and we've become a harlot and like I said in this in this podcast harlot likely means a specialized cult prostitute dedicated to the worship of a god or a goddess using her body selling her body so that all of that money goes to the glory of the god or goddess that she is serving. Well, once again, modern Christian teachers there's they have no Greek training, no Hebrew training. There's so many seminaries that do not teach the Bible in its historical context. They make up their own views and interpretation. If only they had this background and training. But like I said, most seminaries have abandoned it. So again, I recommend that you take a look at Truth Nuggets number seven as I address the real basic question is how does God prohibit premarital sex between two single people, a young man and a young woman who are in love with each other? And they have sex before marriage and they're Christian. Take a look at that. It relates obviously to what we just did in this lesson. So I'm going to see you in episode 15 and we're going to be talking about the eighth commandment in Hebrew, lo teganof, do not steal. So until then, Shalom.